everyone. You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us, of course, every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Dan, you are an inspiration in more than just one way. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> It's episode 20. I needed to say it at some point. And one way in which you have inspired me recently is to go to the gym and to pick up on my workout routine. Yes. So I've done that. I went to the gym. I registered. I never went. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Step one complete. Step one complete. I pay every month and it makes me feel good already. <laughs> no, I actually go to the gym three times a week and I got a new, like a, a workout plan with from a trainer there. I had like mm. a trainer session. And today, this morning, for the first time before our recording, I did the full workout that the trainer had in quotation marks prescribed me. And now everything hurts. Yes. Uh, well, that means it's working, Stefan. Yes. Yes. He, he said to me, as I left, he said to me like, oh, I hope you're going to have a nice sore muscles. <laughs> <laughs> well, mission accomplished. Well, I thank you for saying so. I, I'm, I'm excited that you're going. It's, uh, I think it's a, it's a nice routine to get into. I'm not breaking new ground by saying exercise is good, but boy, it's made, made me feel better in these past couple of months. I can tell you that much. It does make you feel better, right? Apart from the fact that obviously you want to like look cool for the summer season and stuff like that. You <laughs> want to get rid of, of your belly maybe. But for me, the, the best effect that after like roughly a month now of going regularly that I have noticed is that I feel more relaxed when we, for example, record for a couple of hours or when I need to sit down in my office because, you know, working at university, you largely sit down and work on a desk all day and correct term papers and such things. Usually I would always feel kind of, you know, giddy a little bit and then I had to get up and then I had to walk around. Now that I go to the gym regularly, I feel a lot more relaxed. I agree. It's it's really good for that reducing your giddiness, as you put it. I think it's such a great stress management tool because you're right. I, I sit at the desk too pretty much all day and you do, you get kind of nervous and it goes away if you if you're working out, so... Glad to hear it. Turns out human beings are not really made for sitting down at a desk for extensive hours. That's right. <laughs> And I think it's a good it's a good way. I don't know what you listen to, but I always find some good music to listen to. And right now I'm actually stuck on the Deltarune soundtrack when I go to the oh. gym. So Toby Fox, another point in your favor, helping the world <laughs> be better in all kinds of ways. Yeah, nothing like some good combat, video game combat music while <laughs> putting That's some right. weights. <laughs> Dear listeners out there, if you haven't got a gym membership yet, then there's another membership that could potentially be interesting for you, and that is called Studying Pixels Plus. It is our Patreon program, because we need to finance this show somehow. And if you decide to support us, then you get three wonderful things at once. Our most sincere gratitude, which is number one. Number two, a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels. And number three, a monthly plus episode. This month, in January 2022, we've got a plus episode that is titled 10 features that should be in every game. And there are some neat surprises in there. If you want to get Studying Pixels Plus, then go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
And with that, we're moving on to our main story today, which is about computer education for children. We've got Tobias Klöss, who joins us today. He works primarily in the background on studying pixels, but he does pick up an interview every now and then and brings it on the show. I'm really glad that you're here today, Toby. Yeah, I'm also glad that I'm here today. And I'm also glad that I was able to talk to Linda. And Linda Liukas is an award-winning children's book author from Helsinki and is famous primarily for her book series, Hello Ruby which is a really uplifting story of a little girl who is exploring the whimsical world of computers. So, hello, Linda. Hi, hi. <laughs> Me too. Happy to be here. I already told you I have a little bit of a warm-up question. I read on your website that you um, love sparkly things. <laughs> What is it about sparkly things that you love? Mm, maybe, I think it has to do with kind of this feminine idea about like beautiful things uh, being beautiful in their own right and and joyous things being important and that's something that the software industry doesn't always recognize it is very austere and very functional and very much about like this very certain kind of aesthetic and i miss the time when imax had this pastel coloring or Mac, like computers had this pastel coloring and there was more like joyous like ideas around computers and maybe that's kind of what the sparkles mean for me that I like software and sparkles and and the idea that the both can exist at the same time they are not a contradiction I remember you from this year's Gamescom and maybe some of our listeners do too which brings me to my first question because it was the Gamescom how is your work connected to games well games are a huge part of what software does right now and it's interesting Seymour Popper, the famous researcher, said that, like, he spoke a lot about Mathland and how computers are kind of a pathway into a world where numbers can do other things than just, like, add them together. And in some ways, like, games, I don't know what the exact analogy here is, but games are something to computers in the same way as math is to computers. It's like a native environment for them. And games are also, of course, a big free time for me or, like, something I've grown up with. It's interesting. I'm, I was born in 1986, which means that I'm one of the first generation of kids who have these like profound childhood memories of both the internet and as well as like Super Mario and, and like playing Lion King on PC or, or stuff like that, like previous generations don't necessarily have. And I absolutely feel I can relate to a lot of the children growing up now online and where games are a huge part of their lives. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Ruby. So Ruby is a little girl and she appeared to me in 2008 or 2009 when I was studying myself programming. I was learning a language called Ruby on Rails and every time I would run into something I didn't quite understand, like what is object-oriented programming or what is garbage collection in mobile games. Uh, or memory management, I would like draw a little doodle at the margins of the computer science book. And because the language I was studying was called Ruby, the girl became Ruby. And that was kind of the genesis, how I became a children's book author who makes very sort of old fashioned, colorful picture books with unplugged activities around the world of computer science and started with like uh, a book about computational thinking. So What are kind of the thinking skills coders and programmers need to have even before they write a single line of code? But then it grew into a series where there's books about how computers work, the, the Alice in Wonderland story of Ruby falling inside of a computer, but also books about how the internet works and how AI and machine learning work. And they've been quite popular in the world. And, and I think it speaks volumes about how much we need different ways of talking about technology, new kinds of metaphors to exploring the digital world. And I think the latest translations are number 33 and 34, and it was Farsi and Faroese and Thai and Turkish versions came out. So country is very different from my native Finland, but even like, yeah, everywhere in the world, we, we need vocabulary and we need stories and we need narratives to navigate a more, more technical and also more uncertain world. 
Reading your book, I was surprised about your approach um, because it was in fifth grade that I learned to code by just copying it. But here it is rather the case that the reader experiences a story together with Ruby with meeting this kind of magical creatures. For example, the computer mouse is an animal. Why did you choose this kind of metaphor? I think the word you're looking for is anthropomorphic idea about technology. So giving human kind of qualities for non-human objects. And, and it's a, it's actually a very kind of like return to the past in many ways, because in, in the past, in kind of this very animistic world, when we didn't understand the phenomenon, and I'm speaking thousands of years back in history, we would start to tell stories around it. So that's how like the Scandinavian uh, gods of thunder were born. Like, well, it's thundering. Maybe there's a Thor who was making like an anvil or, or whatever up in the skies. And I think it's a very human thing to try to understand something that is very non-human, like the computer hardware for trying to tell stories about a bossy CPU, the processor of the computer who tries to give instructions to everyone else. And there is the helpful RAM memory that runs between the computer and the hard drive, but it gets really like tired and then it forgets forgets everything when the computer gets closed and all in all i think it's just about us humans being like the the way we learn about ourselves and each other and the world around is through stories and they are such sticky concepts that uh have lasted generations and generations because they work and for some reason we often think that technology is somehow uh, doesn't belong to this world the technology is deterministic it's it's objective it it's it's more uh belonging to kind of i don't know like physical sciences and in some ways it is but i think there is a lot that we humans instill into technology in the choices we make in the products we build and that's why stories work so well with technology because they are never like pure materials or pure like they are always products of their time and thought and ideas that people put into it so in my books, there's always a bit of that storytelling, whether it's uh, inside of the computer. But then in the first book also, I named all of Ruby's friends she meets after big operating systems and big technology companies. So there's Snow Leopard, who's beautiful, but doesn't want to play with the other kids because that's the way Apple as a company is. And Apple used to name their operating system after big cats. And there's The, the funny robots that, or like maybe there's them, the penguins that are really book smart and really like efficient at solving big problems, but somewhat hard to understand. And sometimes readers get these jokes, sometimes like they whee, go over their heads, but it makes it very enjoyable for me as a writer to kind of look at the technological world and, and try to deduct the values and ideas and, and the stories that are hidden in beyond the kind of the sleek surfaces and the, yeah products we think are somehow non-political or don't hold any values in them yeah i, I, di i didn't realize it in the in the beginning that this no leopard was about was about <laughs> apple but apple yeah there's a long history of though this like lewis carroll who wrote them i was in wonderland series he was a mathematician But he also hid a lot of like uh, inside jokes and, and ideas into children's books. So sometimes I think like whether children's books are the most, well, not the most complex art form, but, but at least one of the most opinionated <laughs> places. There are so many opportunities to hide things and, and children are such sponges of information. I think my goal with the Ruby books is that like not that children necessarily know how to define what a processor is or how the RAM works or even learn a programming language. It's more that I want for them to have an early childhood memory, an experience where they feel like they belong and have this kind of magical story from childhood that they can reference as they grow older. And maybe they'll make the connection then that, hey, like I can learn how computers work because I read this book as a kid where... Ruby falls inside of the computer and, and so I've well. seen this penguin before <laughs> somewhere. So. <laughs> I've seen this penguin before, absolutely. <laughs> Anyone who's seen one of your videos has seen a lot of cardboards, household items and similar things. So do we need the actual hardware to teach children about computers? It's an interesting question also in the academia where 
I think it was Dijkstra Knothorst said that like computer science students should, I think it was Edgar Dijkstra who said that computer science students, like the grown ones, the university level students shouldn't even touch a computer for the first few years of their computing careers. And this was in the seventies when computers were, of course, much more rare. But the idea that like computers to computer science, and, and this was also like a famous Dijkstra line, he said that we don't call surgeons knife scientists. So why do we talk about computer science? Whereas it's information that computer science is interested in. And incidentally, it uses computers to solve problems in the world. But there are these bigger ideas uh, behind it. And I feel the same is true. I, I mostly work with like early childhood and so much of our understanding of the world at that age is like learned through our fingertips. It's it's learned through sticking our like tongue out and crawling our our hands and knees, and very little of that experience, that sort of tangible uh, fingertip knowledge, is translated through. If we only look at the world through one singular screen or one rectangle sleek surface. And that's why I try to translate a lot of the ideas of computer science into, into, into practical and tangible things so that they can play uh, with their ideas. But I wouldn't go as far as to say that you don't need a computer. Do you think that at some point you need to interact with a computer because computers are very different from cardboard or pens or Lego blocks? But I would maybe push it a little bit further down the line so that the children are familiar with the ideas already and then they can experiment later with the computer. Could your approach be something that poorer countries could potentially benefit from? Countries where having a computer is less common. You know, it's, it's a fascinating question. I don't know if I'm the best person to answer it, honestly. I think I used to have this idea that like, that we need like robust solutions for poorer countries where like they don't need the frivolous like uh, crafts equipment that they need the the employable stuff that gets them the job and so forth. And now I've completely changed my mind because I think if anyone who needs beauty and and like uh, magical things that like spark the imagination, it's like clearly the poorer countries. And we've organized some workshops in African countries where like they are very different. The challenges of like getting electricity or getting working Wi-Fi. So it's not practical to teach the same programming languages necessarily as, say, in in some countries where you have dependable internet everywhere. But I think the bigger challenge is the mobile phone versus the computer, where mobile phones are very omnipresent, but coding and computer science learning interfaces beyond YouTube are still kind of scarce. And you can't really teach how to code, especially, except there's like games and apps and so forth. You can teach the principles, but you, you don't really do it with a mobile phone. And I, uh, my like guess, my big guess would be that we will start seeing more, more coding work being done with mobile phones, even like rigorous and, and hardcore coding, just because they are so pervasive, uh, like such a big part of humanity has access to a mobile phone, whereas they don't have access to a computer with the dependencies and the infrastructure to run some of these programming environments. Um, what do you think? What um, can we adults learn from the viewpoint of children on computers? Oh, I love that question. So from children, we can learn curiosity and fearlessness and, and sense of wonder. I, I, The younger the kid, the less they think that, oh, like I can't be a computer person. They, They just like embrace everything and they they have this fearlessness when it comes to technology and and sense of wonder and like curiosity and then what can we learn from a computer i think it's computers are the ultimate like non-human intelligence out there and there's there are like sci-fi writers who think about this a lot but i think one of the fascinating things for me is to think about like computers have such long time spans that time is very different for them And even though we don't think that computers have consciousness right now, they have some sort of alien intelligence already now built into them because they, some of the things that we humans find very, very hard, like memorizing all the Go games ever played in the history of Go, computers find that very easy. And I, I think it's really interesting to see a generation of children who will train to 
play games, for instance, with the compound intelligences of the past generations put into a computer. And that is this weird, like, non-human intelligence that is built out of human intelligences. And and maybe maybe those are the thing, kinds of things that we can learn from computers, that they they have a bigger time span, that they they can grasp things and recognize patterns we humans can't. Maybe it's something we ought to also respect a little bit and, and like embrace also. Do you have a favorite quote coming from a child? Yeah, there's this little girl and she's not that little anymore even. She must be in her like in high school or something, but she was a nine-year-old when I first met her. And I asked the children to define to me what is, technology and who uses technology and what is it used for and she gave me like the most bjorkser she told me that technology is electricity that loves it is used to play i use it to have a conversation with my mom and finally i yeah we use a whatsapp application and then finally she said people uses technology so in a very endearing way she made the parallel between technology is electricity that loves it might be that it actually read moves but the love was so much more poetic and and there's something that like i don't know it it just makes me smile every time i think let's move over from nice people to mean ones were there ever people who criticized your work i mean a lot of right-winged uh, people were like oh she's not a programmer she's a woman and oh and doesn't even yeah it's not a political spectrum i think it's 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 very much people who've had power when it comes to computer, they feel quite intimidated when someone comes in and says that like this too can be computing and these people too can learn the things that gave you power in the past. And I think absolutely I've had my share of like belittlement and looking down, but then like the people I actually care about, the children, I've never received criticism from them or like, yes, criticism, but never like belittlement. They've always there's like nine-year-old boys who say that like this is too childish for me and they say that's amazing that means that we need to figure out something else for you so that's what keeps me sane in some ways that like the people who I actually work for which is in my case the children they they never say like bad things it was surprising I wrote this article about punch guard like people who used or like punch their punch cards in the 1960s and 70s and they were very much women And I interviewed a few of these women and then also women who became programmers in their early 60s and 70s. And, and there was this like big backlash of, I think they were like male programmers in their maybe 70s and our 60s who said like, absolutely not. Like the thing those women did had nothing to do with like computers. It had nothing to do with programming and they were correct. And I never claimed that they were programmers. I just said that there's this kind of, world that these women were needed to make the computers and we don't tell stories about them so I wanted to tell a story about them and I was very surprised how defensive people became when someone dared to tell a different kind of story of the history of computers in the 1960s and 1970s and that came as a surprise for me for sure. Oh, there was also this um, movie Hidden Figures which is about three black women who were, among others, responsible for getting people to space. Yeah, we have this very pervasive story about like technology being a story about a lone male innovator who comes up with an idea and executes it in, in his or her his garage and mathematically able and so forth. Whereas it's funny like how we only can think through that almost like a hero's journey that like and then he faces hardships but at the end he prevails and I really like would wish that there were different shapes of stories not even that like we need to rewrite stories from the past I think we just need different shapes of stories because computers didn't like fall out of the sky and they didn't come from the mud but they were built by very like multidisciplinary people, material scientists and cognitive scientists and poets and mathematicians. And I love that like there's no single one computer. Like, yes, the NIA, which was incidentally programmed a lot by women, it was 
the first computer, but it was the first digital computer before that there were other kinds of computers. And even when we think about Germany and the history, there was who made like one of the first computers. So there were multiple firsts and multiple approaches. And that kind of never get told as a story because it's a complicated story to tell. And people love simple stories. And the lone male innovator is a simple story to tell. But I, I think we are now ready as a world to start exploring at least different shapes for stories. And one metaphor I keep telling is like, I wish stories would look more like a mushroom hunt because when you go on a mushroom hunt, you don't necessarily find the one white, like lion, the mythical beast that is there. But then when you find one mushroom, you find another mushroom and another mushroom and like these rhizomatic networks start to emerge and they start to make sense and, And I, I wish there was a little bit of more of that in the technology world. What adds to that is a quote by you, taken from one of your presentations, which says, Little girls don't know that they are not supposed to like computers. And that brings me to my next question. Which role do parents play? Well, I think researchers and academics would be much better at answering this question because this is a topic that has been researched and also is being researched quite uh, like currently. And I think at some point there was this like data point that said that by the age of 12 children have, uh, like girls have decided that they are either math people or not math people. And it kind of makes sense because that's the moment when they start to really like preteens start to define themselves and have these like mini identity crises where they start to say that, I like this and I don't like that. And this is who I am and this is who I'm not. But then I read also a research study that's like said that it might even be as early as five years old, which is insane to think that a five-year-old girl can say anything about what they can or can't do, yet alone whether they are like a computer person or not a computer person. And I think this is where the parents' role comes in that like trying to push that delimiting choice as far and as like further ahead to the point where the child actually is ready to make those identity choices. And even then I would be a little bit less black and white saying like, what if you can be both? <laughs> what if it's not like, and, or what if it's, and, and that you can be both math person and an arts person. And many of the best programmers and best computer scientists actually are both that they They inhabit two very different worlds and, and like take inspiration from both of them. But you are also giving some kind of introduction to the parents in your book. So you're, you are engaging the parents to be like present while reading the book and to play with the, with the things in the end. It's a hard ask, honestly. I, I think we, like, I like to give systemic answers saying that we need to invest in teachers and we need to make sure that educational systems take into account that computer science is a foundational like science and it, it's, it's about understanding the world and giving children vocabulary and tools. And it's a hard ask to say that parents need to take responsibility, especially in Western countries where, uh, uh, well, at least in Northern European countries where we often push a lot of the responsibility to educational systems. But I've been working a little bit with my Chinese publisher and it's very fascinating how differently the role of parents is seen in Chinese culture. And I, I got a little bit inspired by, by their approach. And, and I do think that parents have a big responsibility on their children's learning. And the Hello Ruby books, yes, they can be read by a child alone, but yes, they also become so much better when there's a interested parent or like another grown-up. doesn't need to be the parent. It can be just another important grown-up in the child's life who explores these topics together. And that's why there's always a lot of prompts uh, in the activities saying that like, go ask your grandparents or someone elderly, like how they did these things when they're growing up or interview your like neighbors on what they do. So rather than like sticking the child in front of a screen or in front of a book alone, making it a, like a collaborative thing. But I know it's a hard ask and, and parents are doing a lot and learning to think programmatically is not probably the thing you want to start doing because it's hard and it's scary to do things that you don't know well yet. 
But that's where the curiosity and fearlessness and sense of wonder come in, where I think it's important to engage in your children's lives and, and be curious about the things that they will be curious about. And I know quite a few parents who practice uh, math things and conjugations of verbs with their children so <laughs> for school prep. So, so probably coding and computer science are one of these things where maybe we can come back to sparkly things in the end because my last question i think it's a little bit like a vision how would our world change if not only the 20 somethings um, were creative with computers but if we introduced computers to a broader audience instead we were starting to see that i think I used to say that the next big thing won't come from Silicon Valley and it won't come from one of the hotspots. And now we're kind of seeing that like we have TikTok with this like this explosion of creativity. And that didn't that came from China originally. And of course it's like Northern Americans who perform there and, and create content there. But more and more I think we're starting to see a more multi like uh, multi-voiced, that's not where, but many, many voices and different perspectives when it comes to technology world. And in, in some ways, I don't even want to make that guess of what the world will look like, but I, I bet it's going to be more colorful and more exciting and more inclusive when we give more people tools and, and voices to, to create the kind of technology world that looks like them. Because I'm only one person and my books look nothing like the books that I grew up reading when it came to computer science and coding. And I think there is a room for like computer science education that is perfect for the little boy who wants to wrestle all the time or the little girl who can't stand still on like chair or, or someone who's very, very introspective and, and wants to study. And, and maybe that's one of the beautiful things about technology is that it's made us more connected to one another and also opened up markets hate the word markets, but opened up audiences for all kinds of experiences. And I, coming from a small Northern European country, like I wouldn't have been able to do only 10 or 15 years ago. But now with the internet, it's been like possible to reach audiences and reach people who think like I think about the world of technology. And as, as you mentioned with your experience with the parents, like some people love what I do and some like, are, mm, <laughs> like maybe we'll wait for the the educators or the teachers to teach them and, and so forth. And, and that's completely okay. I think it's the plural, plurality of choices is the interesting thing. As long as we have choice and as long as we have different pathways to learn about these things, I think it's a good thing. Says Linda Liukans, the so-called Mary Poppins of computer education. If you are interested further in her work, you can go to her website, lindaliukans.com. Well, thank you so very much, Toby bringing that interview. Thank you very much, Linda, for being here. And now, Dan and me, we're going to move on to do some side questing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back with our side quests in which we scavenge the entire internet for interesting and relevant articles and sometimes we also bring our own video game impressions. Of course, regardless of what we talk about, you can rely on finding all links that we talk about in the show notes right in your podcast app. Number one, Google is trying to salvage its failing Stadia game service with a new focus on striking deals with Peloton, Bungie, and others under the brand Google Stream. This article was written by Hugh Langley and published on businessinsider.com. Well, Google Stadia, it made huge promises when it launched in 2019. And I must say, I kind of was a believer. You were. I'm not usually into that kind of hype all that much. Yeah. But I had a, I was skeptical at first. But then I went to Gamescom in Cologne and I got to play Doom 2016. I think that was Doom 20. Oh, no, wait, it was Doom Eternal. I got to play Doom Eternal on the on Stadia, on the show floor, running on an old crappy notebook that was just plugged into a big monitor. You had a gamepad in your hand, and you could clearly see that it was not running on the local hardware, but that it was streamed. And I found that so impressive, especially for a game as finicky and as twitchy as Doom. Sure. That really convinced me at the time. I think I was on the opposite end of this. <laughs> I didn't have that experience. I don't think I, I don't. I don't think I've actually engaged with it. But I remember this might just be a bias of mine. But whenever, whenever something tries to break into a well-established industry, I always am reticent because it just seems like the barrier of entry is so high that unless you have some kind of incredible gimmick or a perfect system, it barely ever works. Yeah, and with Google. On the one hand, you can kind of think, well, it's such a big company. They have such a huge uh, technological infrastructure sure. and server infrastructure all over the world. So they, sh if anyone is going to be able to pull off video game streaming, I thought it's going to be Google. At the same time, though, we also knew already that Google has a tendency to abandon its services as soon as they don't work out immediately. Then it's like, okay, it's gone. Do you remember Google Plus? Yes. <laughs> that was supposed to replace Facebook, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think somewhere somewhere deep in my internet history, I still have an account because of an old YouTube account. And boy, I haven't thought about that since probably I used that YouTube account. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. back in the day, for a while, Google forced people to create Google Plus accounts, if I recall correctly. Now, now you also need a Google account, but they don't have this kind of plus social media network uh, ambitions anymore. And... As it was with many others of Google's services, problems with Stadia soon started to pile up. There was a communication pro problems straight from the get-go, I think. Straight from the get-go, people were kind of confused about what this is exactly. Yeah, There was this, this slight insinuation that this would somehow be something along the lines of a Netflix for video game streaming, which was, though, never the case. To be fair, Google never communicated that it would be a Netflix for video game streaming. It's just a platform. You need to purchase the games. You don't have a Stadia subscription and that allows you to play like a huge roster of video games. No, you need to purchase them or a license stream them, essentially. And this basically, this turned me off of Stadia pretty quickly. I tried, there were a couple of free games that I tried out and as soon as I was done with them, I thought, okay, I'm not going to buy a, a game on here. I think that's the problem with doing things like this is because there are so many business models that already exist that people are primed to think, oh, it's the it's the blank of blank, right? It's the Netflix of video games. When this was announced, I remember thinking consciously, this is not going to be like Netflix for video games. This is its own situation. 
And yet I also remember that they didn't do much to dissuade people from that idea. It wasn't obviously when you're marketing, you're not going to say what your product isn't, I guess. But still, I mean, this is it's such a specific place that people's minds go to. I think it did them a disservice not to say, no, 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 that's not what this is. It's it's actually this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It came also with a whole lot of lacking features directly at the beginning it didn't really work out. There was a lack in game library and actually games to play on Stadia, even though they had some strong partnerships with Bungie, but it just wasn't sufficient. And after, especially important, Google really hyped up that they would have exclusive Google Stadia games. And they have some, very, very few, and they are pretty cool. There's, for example, a game called Guilt, which I remember playing back then which is kind of like a little bit Silent Hill-inspired. It's about bullying, and you sneak through like an abandoned school. It's like psychological horror. You're a young girl. Oh, It's pretty cool. That sounds interesting. I played yeah. that on Stadia, and it was pretty nice, except for the usual disconnects that would occur, <laughs> because it's a, it's a <laughs> stream after all. However, soon enough, Google decided to close down its internal game studios so they would never see the light of day. Now, quote, the Stadia consumer platform, meanwhile, has been deprioritized within Google, insiders said, with a reduced interest in negotiating blockbuster third-party titles, end quote. And when they say it has been deprioritized, then that is a euphemism for this thing is dead. That's, yeah, that we talk about corporate speak a lot on this show. That is, if you wanted a definition for deprioritized, it means we're not doing anything with this yeah, anymore. You, can, you can't expect anything from this anymore. <laughs> so there no. will be no native Google Stadia games, and there will be no new third-party titles on the platform available anymore. Which raises the question, is this the end of Stadia altogether? And it might be. It might be just... Like, especially in the way that we know Stadia, because Google is now focusing to lend this kind of platform and infrastructure to other companies, for example, Capcom, because they have something there. They have something there with the idea of being able to stream video games directly in a browser to people. And Capcom, for example, intends or even I don't know whether they do it already, but it's at least what they intend to do to allow people to play demos of their games, of Capcom-published games, on the website, directly in your browser. Which is kind of cool, because if you think about it, how nice is it, rather than watching a trailer, you can just pick up your USB-connected controller and simply click Start, and you can play like a 15-minute demo of whatever game. I think this is a very interesting approach. And, quote, this is the last information that I have, Quote, Google has closed at least one deal. In October, AT&T began letting customers stream the game Batman Arkham Knight directly from their web browser. While Google's branding was nowhere to be seen, AT&T confirmed the game was running on the Stadia technology. End quote. I just have a feeling in my gut that we're not there yet with streaming. So the idea of using it for demos or maybe just funneling funneling resources into one particular game as kind of like a, a flagstone or a flagship rather. Yeah. That to me makes more sense than trying to go all in right now. I think so too. I think there will be other companies who will win the race when it comes to establishing video game streaming as a hallmark in the industry. Google Stadia will not be it. But maybe maybe it can be Maybe it can be a provider of services and infrastructure that other companies can then use to make the streaming more available to more people. At least that's a possibility that I could envision. I would think that it's far more likely that given Amazon's ownership of Twitch, that Amazon at some point in the future would take this technology and integrate it into their already existing platforms so that people on Twitch or people on Amazon Prime can use this kind of functionality to actually stream these games or, you know, continue with the demos, whatever it's doing. That to me seems more like, I mean, I guess, unfortunately, we live in a world where Amazon, the Shinra Corporation is controlling everything. (laughs) (laughs) So 
that's probably where it'll end up. But it's not uh, it's not off the table for me. I just think it's not there yet. My chips are on Nintendo because they got the Kingdom Hearts <laughs> Cloud version. Listeners out there, uh, there's a reason I'm not talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> you can play one game and but, stream it from the cloud. Wouldn't that be crazy if Nintendo is the one to lead that? Yeah, they kind of come out <laughs> and then, be... you've been waiting for a Switch Pro. Here's what we have, a Switch Cloud. <laughs> and everyone's like, no, 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 what are you doing? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the opposite of the announcement when people were like crying because of Final Fantasy VII. And people are like crying because they yeah. don't want that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. You can no longer play on the go because you need internet connection. <laughs> Enjoy yeah. your flight. <laughs> it just completely destroys their whole <laughs> ethos. <laughs> oh, Nintendo. Number two. Speaking of Nintendo, so, Stefan, we need Dateline. Video game crimes update. In the world of crimes in video games, Gary Bowser has been sentenced to 40 months in prison. So, if you all remember, we talked, this was a while ago now, about the <clears throat> the switch hacking group team executor which was involved in a lot of sort of emulation and i mean basically piracy of nintendo's software so uh, a couple of months ago we talked about how the kind of figurehead of this or the fall guy whatever the guy who's most involved in this gary bowser hilariously he was facing some court issues for this and it just came out that a U.S. federal court has sentenced Canadian hacker Gary Bowser to 40 months in prison for his involvement in Switch Hacking Group Team Executor. So, 40 months in prison, and he's also still agreed to pay $10 million to Nintendo in a civil privacy lawsuit, in, a, in addition to another $4.5 in restitution to them. But I guess now he's facing some prison time. So, here we are. I mean, here we are on the one hand. On the other hand, the sentence is pretty mild considering the amount of years that he faced potentially. So this is still... Good point. The amount that he agreed to pay, this is removed from this particular lawsuit because that is already settled. He had already agreed on that beforehand. And this now 40 months in prison is relatively a relatively mild punishment considering what Nintendo originally intended to Wait, no, this is not Nintendo. This is the state, right? What the state was going for. I think he was facing up to 10 years. Yeah. And because uh, the U.S. takes piracy pretty seriously still. It's still 40 months. This is where you kind of, you know, take a look at the facts of the case. I mean, they say, I'm sorry, I didn't, uh, I didn't mention where we were getting this information. So this is just a quick article from Engadget from a Mr. I. Bonafide, just kind of updating, updating us on what the verdict was. But... <clears throat> According to the Justice Department, the video game publishers Nintendo has lost over $65 million due to Team Executor. So, I mean, that's a fair chunk of change. And when you look at that compared to the possible 10-year sentence, 40 months, you know, it's punitive, but it doesn't seem overly so, I guess. It's really, yeah, it's tough. I think we spoke about this before, and then we came to the conclusion that we should really do an episode on the ethics of piracy in order to discuss such a matter in detail. Because the thing is that on the one hand, you think immediately, that's at least how I feel, wait, he pirated video games and that's why he's going to prison for 40 months? That is just excessive. And on the other hand, then you think, well, okay, but he did not like just download a couple of games that he wanted to play or with his hacker group. Instead, they provided devices that they sold, so they made a whole lot of money by selling devices that would allow people to circumvent uh, copyright protection. And uh, he made a whole lot of games available for free as ROMs. I do think there are good arguments to be made considering the structural matter of whether video games as a cultural good should even be organized in a capitalistic fashion. And I think that's very much something that we can discuss. But it is also, like, he's not one person that just wanted to have some access to video games is this was a huge business that they basically put up yeah that's an important distinction to make it wasn't it wasn't like and i would never do this but it's not like a college student who downloaded a pokemon fire red rom hack i would have never done that i uh, mean neither that's terrible no you would never do that um and this is more this is a much larger scale thing and so 
I definitely understand why attention was paid to it. We've talked before about how litigious Nintendo is with their with their property. And, you know, I think that I've said before, I really, if you asked me to demonstrate my axiomatic values on the ethics of piracy, I don't know that I would have them for you. I feel very, very gray about it because on the one hand, I'm a big proponent of the sort of historical and cultural importance of video games. I believe that there should be libraries with games and that they should be available to everybody and accessible to everybody. But on the other hand, I understand that it's a business. And when you're stealing, I understand that there's a penalty for that. So we really should do that episode so that we can figure out where <laughs> where we stand concretely. Yeah, on. let's use this one here, this segment as a call out for anyone out there who's really involved with that subject matter. I would be curious to speak mm. to someone, for example, from the domain of moral philosophy about this, right? Because you can't apply such ideas like Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative to the idea of piracy. Uh, so if you are out there, if you're listening to this and you're interested in discussing the matter with us, then hit us up on podcast at studyingpixels.com. Number three, The Sims 4 wedding expansion won't release in Russia because of anti-gay law. I'm shocked. By Andy Chalk. PCGamer.com. It is shocking. The thing is, often enough we speak about major publishers and their wrongdoings. In this case, it's one of the few incidents where I felt like EA did everything right in this context. How often do you get to say that? How often do you get to say that? I relish it. Bathe in the sunlight of those words. <laughs> On 8th of February, EA announced another expansion, another expansion of The Sims 4, titled My Wedding Stories. EA published an announcement trailer um, that featured a couple of characters, amongst who are two female Sims, Dominique and Camille, getting married. And they're smooching and they're doing stuff like that. <laughs> they're also not white, by the way. So, of course... Mm, this would cause some problems, unfortunately, in our times. Unfortunately being the key. And I should clarify, when I said I'm shocked, it was in sarcastic response to Russia. <laughs> it, it is shocking, though, <laughs> this, this situation. It is shocking, because the thing is that one day after announcing the expansion, EA released a statement titled, Our Commitment to You, A Letter to Our Players from The Sims Team. And in this letter, they announced that the expansion will not be released in Russia. The reason is that in 2013, Russia implemented a law to prohibit pro uh, material that promotes, quote, non-traditional sexual relationships, end quote. And if you violate that law, for example, by showing a kiss between two uh, kiss between two men or two women in a film or whatever video game then you can be fined with up to 13,400 US dollars in order to prevent being fined i mean okay 13,400 dollars not a whole lot of money but of course they would not the, this expansion wouldn't stay on the market for long so in order to prevent being fined and going through all of this process the russian market will not be able to access the expansion and EA commented on this saying in their statement, um, this is a like, couple sentences long, quote, as we moved through our development and brand storytelling process, we became aware that the way we wanted to tell Cam and Dom's story would not be something we could freely share around the world. Ellipsis. Holding back Cam and Dom's story meant compromising the values we live by. We are committed to the freedom to be who we are, uh, who you are, to love who you love, and tell the stories you want to tell. Ellipsis. We are steadfast in upholding that commitment by shining a light on and celebrating stories like Dom and Cam's. So we have made the decision to forego the release of My Wedding Stories, where our storytelling would be subject to changes because of federal laws. Regrettably, this means that members of the Sims community in Russia will not be able to purchase this game pack. End quote. You said up top that you think that EA kind of did everything right. And I think what's kind of uplifting to me about this 
because I agree with you. And I think what's uplifting to me about this is that this easily could have been something they didn't speak to. And, you know, if somebody had asked, if, if anybody had asked press, whatever, they could have just said, well, that's how Russia operates, right? But they, they planted their feet and said, well, this is where we actually stand with this. And it's unfortunate that these laws would prohibit such a thing. But we want to make it clear we support this, which is why we're putting it out and why we're making this statement. Exactly. Because it's just simply ridiculous that in the year 2022, there are still a whole lot of cases of violence, of harassment, and of suppression of gay and queer communities in Russia. And the thing is just, it is entirely unacceptable. And I can understand that a company like EA would say, no, we're, we're not going to change us, uh, the story for you. We're not going to make, because this would have been the alternative, we're not going to make an alternative trailer. And we're not going to like modify the version for the Russian market that would not allow same-sex marriage. We're not going to do that, right? And I think it's this is the right approach to take. Just say if you um, like legally implement restrictions that prevent us from telling the story that we believe is right, well, then unfortunately we can't publish our game in your country. As as someone who's not a part of this community, I'm I'm a strong ally of it, of course, but I'm not. I'm not in it, but I would say that this to me is more admirable than making your story in such a way that you can easily edit out certain um, things. Like I think about, I think the big example is there was some controversy around the last Star Wars movie, I think The Rise of Skywalker, where there was a lesbian kiss at the end of it. And people were saying, okay, well, when this goes to China, they, they shot it in such a way that that can just be cropped out or that can be left out. So it's, it's sort of like that reads as a company having its cake and eating it too in a, a little bit. Whereas this to me feels more like we're not going to edit it. We're not going to change it. If you don't want to see this, that's your prerogative. So we're not going to sell it. It is you. even the exact opposite because in The Sims, you do not at all have to engage in a same-sex relationship, right? right? Instead, right. they course. took it and put it front and center for the marketing material to make things very clear straight from the get-go. This is, by the way, this is not the first time this has happened. It's also not the first time that this happened to The Sims 4 because the game, The Sims 4, the main game, is rated T for teen in the U.S., but it's rated adults only in Russia because of, you know, the possibility of same-sex relationships. Particularly troublesome. Ah, that's such terrible news, such a terrible subject to talk about for the end of this show. Well, then let's, let's, let's punch it up a little bit. I think that we, we don't, <laughs> as gamers, we don't get to praise EA often, if at all, right? And I think that this is a, this is a, a cool stance to take. I would argue that they, as you said, they did the right thing. And I think that my thought on situations like these is that it is, it's better to be uncompromising in what kind of material you're putting out than to bend or waver in front of, I mean, honestly, sort of monetary blows that you might face, right? I think that this, to me, speaks volumes about what the Sims team is willing to do and how they're willing to stand up for things that they believe in. And I'm glad that it happened this way. I'm sorry that Russia can't get this game for a lot of reasons, but good on you, EA. Well, maybe there's some kind of ROM that is uploaded somewhere. Gary Bowser, we're looking to you. <laughs> we're relying on you. <laughs> Dear listeners, thank you so very much for coming by and enjoying this show with us. If you want to support us and get Studying Pixels Plus, then please visit us on studyingpixels.com. Also, it would be very helpful if you would leave a review of this show. You can do so on Apple Podcasts. And most recently, Spotify has also implemented the possibility. So if you're listening on Spotify right now, you should have the opportunity to give us a star rating. Submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com if you have any. We're looking forward to hear from you. And then we're going to talk again next week. Bye, everyone. See you then. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.